0: You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness.
1: This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, the rabbit hole goes deep. The tinfoil hat is shiny. As I finish my discussion on Rendlesham, England and the Rendlesham Forest incident, this is part two. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Secret. What is yours? Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 5.10, the final episode of season 5, the final episode of Rendlesham Forest. It all ends. I hear, as they say. But yes, so if you remember from last week, I pretty much did the whole story from beginning to end. And and because tonight, on this episode, I want to focus on a couple of very major explanations for what might have happened that night in Rendlesham Forest. And then we'll talk about a couple of, just slightly smaller, plausible scenarios. You know, the same ones that we always get into whenever we talk about UFOs, really. And then I'll circle back around, and I'll just kind of, I don't know, I'll give some notes. I'll give some opinions about the whole thing and where I'm at on it. And uh, then we'll go in. Of course, there's some news to talk about. Uh, there's some Your Small Sound Secrets to talk about. We'll finish up the episode, and we will finish up the season... And then we can all start looking forward to Season 6. So really, that's all I've got. No big intro tonight, no banter, none of that. Let's, uh, let's just get right into Rendlesham Forest, Part 2. Hello. Do you like werewolves?
0: Ghosts? How about weird legends, folklore? Or is witchcraft your thing? Then join us on Charles Christian's Weird Tales Radio Show every Thursday. We're on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, YouTube,
1: and at WeirdTalesRadio.com. When you start looking into the Rendlesham incident, many go straight to it being an alien craft. And a lot of people, especially people like Larry Warren, Sure thought so. Warren was a newbie at the base at the time, arriving just weeks before the incident. He claims he was part of a group assembled to fire up and deploy the light alls. Remember, we talked about those a little bit in depth. Those are the gas-powered spotlights, basically, that they had a lot of trouble with getting uh, up and running. So he, Larry worked on the base... And uh, says that he was part of one of these groups, whose first task was to get the light offs going. But he later found himself far out in the woods, near the edge of the woods, actually, out by uh, all the farmers' fields that uh, that bordered a certain section of the woods. We'd also talked about that, about the animals, the dogs, and everything from all the farmers around uh, making noise. Warren goes on to say that he and at least 40 other men came upon a pulsating, kind of like a a mist, a fog, pulsating with light. And while in this mist, the words, here it comes, crackled over their radios. He and this group of men that he was with saw a red light fly overhead. This light then exploded in a blinding white light. After that light faded, a triangle craft landed before them. So far, most of this seems in line with what I discussed last week. But then, things take a turn. Inside the craft were two beings. Floating beings, you describe them as. like They weren't really sitting, they weren't standing, they were just kind of hovering inside the craft. A higher-up then went up to the craft and began speaking with them. So he doesn't know who, but one of the much higher-ranked people at the base went up and started having a conversation. Warren couldn't remember the conversation word for word, or really at all for that matter, but he seemed to get the impression that the craft had been damaged and had stopped for uh, repairs somehow. It is quite the story. A story that must be noted has changed many times over the years. There's also another problem. No one can vouch for Larry Warren, nor can he seem to come up with any names of any of the men that were with him that night. He seems to be the only witness, quote-unquote, that can't do that. If you really think about it, I wanted to kick off with this one because this really is the big, like, I saw aliens uh, witness to the story. But I don't know about him, and a lot of people don't either. For the for the straight matter, it was of the fact that he can't corroborate his story with anyone else around him. Think about it. Everybody else... We've talked about Penniston, Burroughs, Holt, everybody can point a finger to like two, three, four other people that they were with that night, name them by name, and go, I was with that guy, we did this, we were all with that guy, we all did that, everything. Warren can't do any of that. He can't even remember the name of the higher up that allegedly walked up to this craft, you know, tapped on the window and then, uh, and then uh, talked, talked to these guys. So make of it what you will. I mean, there's not a whole lot on Larry Warren. That's about the long and short of it. But I really wanted to kick off with just the good old, you know, not only is it UFO, but it is an alien craft that landed. And it had aliens in it. But uh, aliens and UFOs, they are only one explanation. Jim Penniston has another one. As I mentioned last episode, I purposely left out a big chunk of the story uh, because the story was a completely turns into a completely different explanation. And but now it's time. It's time to talk about the Rendlesham Code. If you recall, Penniston actually touched the craft, and when he did he was assailed by bright white light. The light just didn't daze and confuse Peniston for a few seconds. It implanted something into his head. Trapped in his head was a series of ones and zeros, or commonly known as binary code. So I'm going to stop and get uh, nerdy for like a minute uh, and explain to everyone if you don't know what binary is binary is essentially a code that all of our computers use to basically output information so it's all ones and zeros right and i don't know i couldn't i can't tell you what anything in binary is but like for example if you type an a on your keyboard your computer does not look at and go oh that's an a your computer goes that is 010 uh, zero, zero, or whatever and knows that you have typed an A because it gets the binary code 010, or whatever that would be, and then puts an A on your Microsoft Word, or whatever it is. That's a very low-level layman's way of explaining what binary code is, but it is a thing, all ones and zeros, and it's been around since, you know, computers have been around. For the next couple of days, while he was at home, he was plagued by this code buzzing around in his head he didn't know what to do with it one morning after he woke and this was probably around the time that he went back with his buddy from town to go make their own plaster cast of the, uh, the landing gear this was all kind of that same kind of time frame like a couple of days in between there uh, he grabbed a small notebook after he woke up and he wrote the whole code down one malfunctioning pen and 16 pages later it was all on paper and seemingly out of his head so I mean he kind of you know describes it as this was just in his head he could see it he could you know say it but once he got it out once he wrote it down once he got on something tangible it just it was gone and he couldn't like you know before he could probably sit there and recite it to somebody you know Once he wrote it down, gone out of his head, couldn't remember one of it, and uh, he felt so much better. Uh, Probably the most normal he felt uh, in those last, last few days around the incident. And after that, he put the notebook away and I didn't think about the code for over a decade. However, in 1994, he underwent hypnotic regression for PTSD and other health issues like anxiety and stuff like that. So it must be, it's very important to note that he did not do this uh, it wasn't like a Betty and Barney Hill thing where he went under regression to remember stuff about said UFO incident. Uh, It wasn't for that at all. It was for completely different reasons. I mean, maybe the PTSD might have a, a dusting of that might have been on there, but he didn't go there specifically to be like, I want to remember Rendlesham. He went there for other issues. In this regression, he recalls not only the code, but he also says the code was downloaded into his head after activating one of the glyphs on the side of the craft. As the regression proceeded, Peniston remembers being interviewed by two men Two kind of unknown men, probably very men in blackie, I would almost assume. And they revealed a couple of very interesting things to him during this interview. The code that he had been bestowed with was called binary. Like, this is 1994. You know, your average Joe doesn't know what binary is in 1994. And I sure as hell didn't know what it was in 1980. So he had ones and zeros. He knew that what he had. They didn't know what they were called. Now he knows what they are called. Then he was told that the craft was actually piloted by. Have you have you gotten there yet? Time travelers. Where else would the binary come from? We made it up. It's got to be from us. So I think he was also told that uh, these guys like to come back. Uh, we're having trouble reproducing in the future, so they come back to the past in order to harvest. Uh, stuff from us to continue living in the future. So I've heard. And he was also told by these men uh, to keep quiet, and he did keep quiet until 2010. In 2010, Pennison stared shared, sorry, sections of the code with a couple of trusted people, such as Linda Malton Hal and Kim Sheeran, who was a co-executive producer. For Ancient Aliens, and then later, a couple of men, uh, well versed in ASCII, which is another computer language and binary code, Nick Cast and uh, Joe Lucino. He and Linda had spent the day shooting with a TV crew, and I'm assuming it was an Ancient Aliens. Uh, I'm not sure if it was like an Ancient Aliens episode or something for them, but he he was shooting something with Linda and, and all and these others. And uh, he brought out his notebook because uh, someone wanted to check a date for something that they were discussing. He was like, oh, I have my notebook here from that time. You know, let's look it up. And uh, while they were searching for this date, they stumbled upon, you know, the code, the 16 pages of binary. And uh, everyone was like, nope, this is what we need to talk about. This is the important thing. So then I am assuming that is when they reached out to uh, Nick and Joe to look at it further. So at the time, only a small part of the code had been made available to be decoded. And it, it starts like this. Exploration of humanity. 666-8100. And then the next line is uh, appears to be latitude and longitude for high Brazil, which is not Brazil. Uh, this is Brazil with an S, not a Z. And this is in Ireland. And then it goes on to say continuous for planetary advan, question mark, question mark, question mark. Coordinate, not coordinate, coordinate, Uh, content out. C O N T I N O U T. And then it kind of just ends in a bunch of gibberish letters Uh, U Q S C B P R, and then the word before. And then after that, it goes on to give what appears to be more latitude and longitude to various esoteric sites around the globe, such as Sedona, Arizona, uh, the Great Pyramid, and the Nazca Lines, just to name a few. It ends with Eyes of Our Eyes, High Brazil, again, the place in Ireland, which was the origin, and then origin year 8100. And I will stop here for a minute and say that uh, after that episode... Uh, Chris Voidberg and I got to talking. If you remember, Chris is the guy who sent in the story about the like the, the neon-colored uh, flailing weird entity that he saw when he was a kid. Uh, we looked at a little bit of this. I sent him pictures because in the book, in the Nick Pope book that I used a lot last episode, I'm using a lot here, uh, there's pictures of all 16 pages. Like that, was the, that was the first time it was released in its entirety. It was in that book. And uh, we kind of messed around with it a little bit. I don't think we, I don't think uh, a lot came out of just throwing it into like a binary translator and getting results. But uh, some fun, some fun things come up when you put certain lines of it into the secret cipher of the Euphonots that we all know from Hellier, uh, such as "exploration of humanity" popping out to translate to "accursed, accursed, be it." Which uh, is interesting. So if you, if, if anyone wants to mess around with that, and see what you get, or if you're really bored and you're really good at binary and you know something that I don't, yeah, that which is most of it, maybe you can uh, find something else. And if you do, uh, please let, let me know about it. But we did mess around with it just a little bit. We had a little discussion, and it was kind of, kind of a neat thing uh, to do. So I just I want to thank Chris real quick for uh, uh, just having that back and forth and having that discussion. Uh, maybe maybe when I get a chance here over the break, uh, maybe I'll mess around with it a little bit. Or uh, I know a couple of people that might know enough about binary, might know enough about you know, back-end stuff to maybe make some sense of it. It is also interesting to note that in recent years, Pendleton's medical records seem have become classified. He found this out in 2012 after some heart problems. So he had to get like a pacemaker or something, and the hospital was like, well we need medical records. And so he went, you know, to whatever, the VA or whatever, and said, Hey I need my medical records. And they were like, mmm, we you know, so I guess that took a little bit of doing for him to get that. So what could be the cause of this? Is it what he experienced that night in the woods? Or is it because of the hypnotic regression sessions that he had back in 94? Did they maybe reveal a bit too much? And now they have become classified material. But uh, UFOs, aliens, time travel, all of them seem to have their own merits. But is there like a much more down-to-earth explanation of what happened? That night, in Rendlesham Forest, there is actually, and uh, we're going to talk about it right now.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times.
1: So, this is the part where we're really going to go down a conspiracy rabbit hole. A proper conspiracy rabbit hole. I'm talking the Charlie meme and and all of it. So, get your get your tinfoil, get your... And I say all this with love, by the way. Uh, get your string, get your cork boards out, because this is where it's going to get uh, just... In, I mean, like I said, proper uh, military conspiracy theory as we talk about all of this stuff. I said down to earth, and what I meant was down to earth. I didn't mean like everything was going to be nice and prim and proper. I'm just saying it doesn't involve aliens, it doesn't involve time travelers, uh, this doesn't involve like a weird binary code or otherworldly events of any sort. Everything in what I'm about to talk about could happen probably has happened. Uh, did it happen in a way that made Rendlesham be a fit for it? I don't know. But it's about to get uh, thick. thick in here with conspiracy. So the area around Rendlesham Forest is a hotbed of intriguing places. The forest itself has tales of ghosts, big cats, and other cryptids such as its own the Shug Monkey. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about a couple of these places. There's Baldsley Manor, a mansion turned RAF radar base in 1936. This former base, which has been the site for many classified radar projects since World War II, is 10 miles from the forest. Uh, if you are a Patreon and you listen to the last Backroads episode where we talked about Shingle Street. That is the radar station that they kind of surmised was the German target. If you haven't listened to that, well then patreon.com stscast sdscast and uh, you can uh, listen to that episode. Uh, Offerness was home to many atomic weapons and radar classified programs over the years. It's seven miles away. And then how about the aforementioned Shingle Street? which I talked about, like I said, I talked about in backgrounds, but I'll give everyone a quick, like, summary of what it is. Uh, There's a story that uh, in the middle of World War II, the Germans attempted to infiltrate Britain via Shingle Street, the beach on the little town of Shingle Street, and uh, it did not go well for them. Uh, Defenses were made, which involved piping fuel through some pipes and setting the sea on fire and then uh, essentially burning a bunch of German invaders alive. Uh, and there's a lot of, did this happen? Was this just like a morale-boosting story? Uh, we have people that said it happened. We we don't really have any like, full evidence of it. Anyway, whole Backroads episode done on over at the Patreon. But Shingle Street, it's eight miles away from Rendlesham Schwarz. And that's just a couple. Like, there's... This is, basically, this is basically where Britain does all of their weird military experiments and research and stuff is all around this area. And then there is Porton Down, a 7,000-acre secure facility in Salisbury. It is home to many projects related to biological weapons, psychological warfare, and the like. It is located much further away, uh, some three hours or 187 miles away, but it will become very important uh, towards what I'm about to get into. This explanation of what may have happened in Rendlesham starts with ball lightning. Ball lightning is a phenomena in which charged balls of plasma seem to appear after thunderstorms. I think I've mentioned this on the show before. I have seen ball lightning one time after watching a fireworks show on the 4th of July. It started to rain. It was over, almost. It was over. There were no fireworks being shot. And then on the way home, I remember seeing a weird little ball of light floating through what I feel is a cornfield, or possibly a field of wheat at the time. So I've seen ball lightning, I think. But ball lightning is basically just charged plasma... And it shows up a lot during or after thunderstorms. And it, it, it hangs around for a little while and floats around. And even though we can recreate it in a lab, for the most part, we're not entirely sure what causes it or exactly what it is. Two men who were assigned to Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. And that is a place that I will probably come back and maybe do an, like an episode on. Maybe, if it's... <laughs> if it works. But that is a strange place all in itself. Uh, But these two guys, they worked at Edgewood Arsenal. They were signed there. Their names were C.E. Wilson and W.B. Little. And they wrote a 92-page paper entitled Survey of a Kugelblitz, which is German for ball lightning. Theories of Electromagnetic Incendiaries. In short, this Paper presented ideas on how to create ball lightning, weaponize it, and even control it with lasers. This would account for the balls of light that Charles Halt and the others saw, uh, the explosions that those balls of light made, and uh, could this a uh, pencil-thin beam of light, if you remember that that Halt saw just before the light explosion, and that could that have been? a laser guiding said ball of light. Uh, Ball lightning tech was not the only thing to come out of Edgewood. Operation Delirium was a project to develop a cloud of psychochemicals such as LSD, PCP, and other powerful psychoactive agents that would pretty much break the minds of any troops affected by it. So you may have heard about this. This was done a lot. We we would experiment with LSD and PCP and uh, there's footage out there of it, of people on it, you know, they would, they would pay these guys, like, hey, come down this weekend, we'll give you a few bucks and three, you know, three hots and a cot for the weekend, but uh, we want you to take this stuff and help us out a little bit. And then uh, they would be given LSD or whatever You know, some guys would, you know, be weird and very happy and off the wall doing whatever. Some guys could barely move. They'd be all wonky like they were, you know, super drunk. And some guys just broke down and cried up in a tree. Like, really weird and kind of devastating stuff sometimes. But, yeah, but it happened. We did it. The British did it. Everybody did it. Porton Down conducted similar experiments on unsuspecting troops in the 50s and the 60s. So is it possible that the troops stationed at Bentwaters were exposed to psychoactive drugs via aerosol and they hallucinated some elements of what they saw that night? Like, it's it, it would fit. Here's the thing though, all those guys saw the same thing. So could these chemicals be engineered to produce a shared hallucination. Or, I don't know, maybe when one guy starts hallucinating and he feeds out an idea, does everyone else's hallucinations kind of, can they piggyback on that first one and then just fall suit? I guess that's what a shared hallucination is. But that's the only kind of thing I have with that. But think about it. Think about last episode when I said that Peniston and Burroughs uh, felt like they were walking through water. When they got so close to that craft, that it was hard for them to walk. It was hard for them to kind of get through that thick atmosphere. could have been that there was no thick atmosphere, and they were just uh, tripping on LSD and or PCP. It's certainly possible. I'll give it that. It was discovered that at the end of 1980, a team was dispatched from Porton down in full hazmat gear. And many believe that this was to uh, determine, to help determine what happened uh, those two nights. But it seems that this team had been dispatched before the incident happened. So there's this team get dispatched, and they go out into the forest, and they set it all up: the drug cloud, the light show, uh, even as far as to break some branches and make some fake landing impressions, it's not as far-fetched as it sounds. Keep in mind, the day before the incident was Christmas. The streets and towns would have been very quiet, with next to nothing being open, and many people spending time indoors with their families. This would have made it much easier to sneak around undetected. And I, I want to pause here and say... That my primary source for all of this is uh, a book by Nick Redfern called The Rendlesham Forest Conspiracy. So everything that I'm getting into in this big explanation is that book. Uh, it, there's, Of course, there's a link to it in the show notes. You can go grab it if you want. But a lot of the information that he got that prompted him to eventually write this book, he got from another author named Georgina Bruni. And she was the one that really found out. I think a lot of the porting down stuff. She was the one that found out about them going out, you know, the day before, and in hazmat suits and setting all this up. And she found out a lot of the other stuff about uh, just other people in hazmat suits. And maybe this wasn't the only, the only place they tried this at. Yeah, maybe this was the only place they succeeded though. So a lot of this comes from. Her work, and then sadly she passed away. And I think eventually Nick wrote this book kind of in an answer to uh, finish what she started, as well as some other factors that came into his life. It was like, I need to write a book about this. So that is where all this is coming from. And I just wanted to take a second and acknowledge that source. This is, this is a big, big one. The whole thing is based off this book. And that's, that's where all this is coming from. Also, it's Nick Redfern who kind of pointed out the whole... This is how Christmas is in Britain. Everything is very quiet. No one goes out, which makes a whole lot of sense. And he kind of came up with that. That would be the perfect time to do it because it's the holidays, because everyone is going to be concerned with other things. So that's the whole port and down angle and what they might have done in this grand scheme. But how about the radar readings from that night? In the last episode, I mentioned that something was caught on radar. Hung around for about 15 minutes before flying off and disappearing. This too can be explained by a military project. Something called a ghost aircraft. There was a man named S. Eugene Poteet, who was an electrical engineer and a physicist who also worked on the U-2 and the SR-71 spy plane. And oh yeah, he was also a CIA scientific officer. It was Poteet... Who came up with the idea of the ghost aircraft as quoted from volume 42 number one of the 1998 edition of studies and in intelligence this is a direct quote from that edition from him i came up with a scheme to electronically generate and inject carefully calibrated false target into soviet radars deceiving them into seeing and tracking a ghost aircraft could the british government have used such a technique to fool its own radar operators around Rendlesham forest of course all of these schemes and projects they're all over the place but perhaps the uh, Tizard committee may be the answer to it all the committee was started in 1930 and helped develop modern radar Uh, which we first saw during World War II, most of which was at Balsley Manor. The committee also served as as an information-sharing program between Britain and the U.S. Is it possible that over the years, the two governments shared more than just radar information, bringing all of this information, all of these ideas, into one place to later be used by the British government or maybe even the U.S. government, or maybe both of them, as an experiment to see how troops would react to seeing something out of this world. Either as just to see what would happen, or maybe they were testing it as a deterrent, a military deterrent to use on the Russians, or something like that. But it all is there. It's all kind of loose, but it can come together. Balsley Manor, the Radar, they handle the ghost aircraft perhaps offer ness help with the Kugelblitz and the lasers and then porton down takes care of the chemicals and carries out the whole plan it's a lot of moving parts but it does seem plausible and uh, after all the military has done very similar things like like i said think of uh, like mk ultra think of the lsd test and stuff that i mentioned earlier Stuff like that has happened before. And uh, like I said, it's a lot to take in. That's pretty much the gist of it. Uh, Like I said, I'll link that book in the show notes. There is a lot to chew on in it and a lot of stuff I I didn't mention. There's a whole part with, like, holograms that may be able to make physical things. And I really didn't get into it because I don't know if I buy that we have holograms that can make something solid. Uh, and, and but the explanation for it was very quantum physics and stuff so maybe so but there's a whole section on that in there and some other great stuff and yeah it all makes sense and it all could come together and it could they I've, they very well could have done it and I would be just as intrigued with the mystery if that's the explanation my only problem with all of this is yeah you're reading that book you know, and you're waiting. Like, he found so many documents, so much freedom of information stuff, and, you know, connected all of these things. He got, like, a book sent to his house before he started writing this book uh, that was about this book, and it doesn't know who sent it to him, and it was about, you know, I think the ball lightly stuff was in it. Just weird stuff. But there's not a smoking gun in there. And I guess there isn't, I guess there wouldn't be. Because if the, if he had found a document that said, "Oh yeah, in 1980, Britain uh, started Project Limelight or whatever," and that is what they triggered, that is what they did to these guys, Reynolds Ocean Forest, then then I guess the mystery would be solved if, if there was such a document. And uh, I may not be talking about it right now, but like where it stands, he, he you know a bunch of really interesting projects were found. And linked together in a way that makes sense. Uh, but there's nothing in the book or any documents that we have seen that that tie up every loose end and say, yes, this is we could we could take this document and say, it doesn't say a Ocean Forest, but it does say they tried to do something with all of these things in Britain in the eighties, and we can surmise. It doesn't get that far, and that's the only issue I have with it. So it's not really anyone's fault. I just don't think that the documents have been released that will, and maybe they will one day, that, that say that this is a true explanation for what happened at Reynoldsham Forest. But hey, it's, it's down to earth, like I said. It's grounded in things that people were researching and people had tried. Uh, it is a completely human explanation, a completely plausible explanation. So the only thing, that I can come to a conclusion to is that Reynolds and Forrest was 100% without a doubt time travelers. Thank you very much. And uh, with that all explained, let's just take a look. Let's take a minute to talk about some of the more mundane explanations for that night. And of course, uh, there's there's always a famous skeptical story to all of these. And this one is no different. The most famous of the skeptical stories of these other explanations is that it's is that simply the men were seeing the light from the nearby Ordfurness Lighthouse. Uh, Ordfurness, which I just talked about a little bit ago. And uh, we also talk about that in the backgrounds episode. I think the, the lighthouse is mentioned as being one of, uh, like, you know, the battle, this quote-unquote battle that may or may not have happened, took place between the lighthouse and another point. Uh, So, yeah, just light from a lighthouse. But keep in mind, this doesn't explain any of the other things that happened that night. It doesn't explain the craft. It doesn't explain the radiation. It doesn't explain, you know, trees breaking or any of that. It just explains the lights. And which doesn't really jive with anyone, really, unless you just want to completely write it off. Because these men were very familiar with the area. They lived there. They worked there. They knew where the lighthouse was. And in fact, the lighthouse is mentioned as being identified as being like a point of like, yeah, we saw the lighthouse so we could tell where other stuff was at uh, in no less than five of the witness statements. So a lot of skeptics will bring up this whole lighthouse thing. It really doesn't hold any water whatsoever. And then there is a great story, I love it, of a former USAF policeman named Kevin Condy, And he said that back in 1980... He was at Bentwaters and all this, and he played a prank by driving around in the forest around the East Gate. Uh, he had put a green, like, a you know, he had put whatever, stuff over his lights to change the color to, like, green and red or whatever, and he drove around with his lights blaring and his siren going, making weird noises, and he drove around the forest for a little bit, and then he just turned it off and drove away. Uh, but once again, problems with this. Once again, it doesn't account for anything else. It doesn't account for the broken trees, the radiation, all of that. Uh, it just accounts for the strange lights. And uh, he can't tell us when he did this prank. He's like, I did it in 1980. But he can't, you know, tell us uh, I did it Christmas 1980. He could have done it in July, for all we know. And the other thing that I don't like about this one, even though I think it's very fun, is that, you know, last episode, I told you on that first night that Penningston Burroughs and uh, uh, the other guy that went out there with him, his name escapes me at the moment. They went out on a Jeep, but they had to stop and go on foot because uh, the roads around the the forest or whatever were, you couldn't drive on it very well. So I don't know if this guy was just driving around on, like, paved roads or whatever, or if he was like in the, if he says he was in the woods, which makes me think like, but these guys couldn't get out there, and you know on a jeep just to go out there. Could this guy drive around the thick woods at night? And he, he was, a, he was a like an, a military policeman, so I'm assuming he played a, a jeep as well. But like, if they couldn't have done that, could he have done that? I don't think so. And then of course there are your uh, standard ones that we always get, uh, meteors satellites, you know, experimental aircraft. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure that a few people out there think that it was just swamp gas. But no matter what happened, be it aliens, time travelers, it was totally fucking time travelers, uh, a clandestine government project or a cop who thought he was being funny, whatever happened, something happened in and Forest that night in 1980. And it's something that's changed the lives of many men, and none, I think, for the better. And that's that's it. That's my entire presentation, <laughs> my entire podcast on the Rendlesham Forest incident. And like I said, I'm intrigued by it. I think it is a more intriguing case at this point than Roswell. Unless some amazing deathbed confession or, you know, a piece of that weird metal shows up, I think I think Roswell is, will quickly become a ghost. Just It's too old, too many people that were around are not around anymore, and uh, if it's been buried, I think it's been buried long enough where it's going to be very hard to dig any of it up. But Rendlesham is not that old. It took place in much more modern times. We have so many, so much more information on it, so many more documents. And uh, you know, most of these people are still around and they are willing to talk. Like like I said, Holt has gone full blown UFO with everything. He talks about it all the time now. And he's like, it was UFOs, it was UFOs, it was UFOs. You know, Pennyston and Burroughs helped write that Nick po- with that book with Nick Pope and all of that. And I think, think Penniston wrote another book with somebody else. So I think that Roswell is interesting, but it's not going to be the case that cracks it. I think Rendlesham may be the case that helps us get further uh, to the truth on whatever's going on out there, which is, of course, time travel. Duh. Uh, so there you go. That is the middle of the show. Uh, a little little intermission, a little music, and uh I will be back with your local headline. And the first story I have tonight is a goblin story. Uh, it is entitled, A Thukalasi on the Loose, written by uh, Cabello DiPaolo from TheVoiceBW.com. This is from Botswana. A uh, young boy tormented by faceless creature in Tobain. A violent, short-tempered, faceless creature with with a fierce throw and an even hotter slap has been tormenting an 11-year-old Tobain primary school boy. The child was temporarily taken out of school and briefly relocated to Mamendir as his parents sought refuge from the supernatural being which has made a habit of slapping and choking him. Throwing stones at passing cars, breaking windows, and even slapping the pasture reportedly sent to exorcise it, causing the man of God to flee are just some of the things the faceless terror has been accused of. News of the Thukalasi, which is the name they are using for this government, in the village of Tobain, nestled deep in the eastern part of Botswana, broke on social media late Friday. The allegations would later gain traction as more stories about a Thukalasi throwing tantrums in the village emerged. In an interview with The Voice last Saturday, two weeks after the Thukalasi first struck the tormented boy's grandmother and guardian, Amalta Odizi, insists that reports have been greatly exaggerated. However, the old woman reluctantly admits that the strange happenings have hit her home recently, literally as four smashed windows indicate. Her absent grandson is further proof that something is amiss. A staunch member of an African Baptist church, Modizi, angrily blames a certain mom pritcha for uh, spreading falsehoods about her and her family she's a daughter of a traditional doctor in the village and i was alerted to this personal attack by concerned neighbors who shared a voice who shared a voice recording of her just spewing lies and making all sorts of claims remonstrates the stooped elder visibly uneasy and growing increasingly agitated the granny reveals her grandson woke in the middle of the night, weeping, and he was being pinched and punched. Like this past Saturday, he woke up screaming, saying something was hitting him. He was evidently in pain, but I could not see anything. I don't know why someone will go around claiming a thokolasi attacked my son. How do they know that? I've never seen a thokolasi in my life. Just like everyone else, I have no answers, she said, fixing this reporter with a soul-piercing glare standing in her well-swept yard of several chickens roaming about blissfully, unaware of the old woman's anguish. But further told the voice that the faceless intruder had a habit of throwing stones at their two-bedroom house. The first time it happened, I was at a neighbor's house around midday when I heard a loud bang on the roof. I initially thought teenage boys hunting birds may have thrown the stone. However, the second stone landed, and together with my neighbor, we went to investigate. When a third stone hurtled through the front window, they realized something out of the ordinary was happening. This thing continued for some time, and as you can see, all of my windows are broken. But that's as far as it goes. No passers have been hurt, nor stones-throws at passing cars. The village leadership even came here to assess the damage, and none of them were slapped by the alleged Thokalasi, she said. As you mentioned, you've been here for the past few p- the past two days. Has anything slapped you yet? Challenged Modisi, adding her grandson was due to return the following day. In an interview with The Voice, Gasso named Tego which I'm sure I probably did not pronounce correctly, of Tabone, confirmed visiting the tormented family after the matter was reported at her office. We saw the broken windows and the little boy, But as far as I can say, I don't know where the Thokolasi story comes from," maintains uh, Mothadisi, who declined to have her picture taken. Meanwhile, a prominent religious leader in the village, Prophet Frank Mode of the Heavenly Assembly International Church, uh, confirmed stories of mysterious creatures that are rife in the village. I once had a similar case in church where a man complained that a hairy female creature had joined him in bed every night. He said the creature was really scary and had been tormenting him for years. We prayed for him, and he was delivered," said Prophet Mod. Uh, the youthful religious leader defined a Thokolasi as a Satan or evil spirit that occupies a host body to torment the human race. I've been in the village for seven years, and the most common complaints of people who have come to my church are people complaining about spiritual wives and husbands. People saying they have been sexually uh, used while they are asleep, he said. We can pray and deliver these people, but they've keep but they've kept reading the word of God and being prayedful concluded the pastor. And yeah, really not really a quote-unquote goblin story, but that's the way it's kind of been uh, described in other outlets. It's really, once again, and once again reminds me of the Humpty-Doo poltergeist throwing of stones and just, you know, the kid getting slapped and and all and This is all very Poltergeist-like, so I'm going with Poltergeist on this one. And this next story is uh, from Canada, uh, out in Nova Scotia, in Halifax, from cbc.ca. And I just wanted to do it because I love the pictures of this bewildered man in the story. Uh, the headline reads, Halifax Man Receives Mysterious Three-Headed Taxidermic Duck in the Mail. And this is written by Emma Smith. Uh, Brent Brayton of Halifax is now in possession of a taxidermy three-headed duckling, and he has no idea why. It arrived in the mail last week in an unassuming cardboard box that sat on his table unopened for hours because he figured it was a Pilates ball he had ordered online. It wasn't. I tore away the plastic and the packaging, and then one of the duckling's faces emerged, And I immediately sort of jumped back, he told CBC Radio's Main Street. When I gained the courage to go back to the box and dig a little bit further, I noticed it wasn't just one head, but there were three duckling faces staring back at me. The package is addressed to Brayton, with a return address in China, so he's certain the duck delivery wasn't a mail mix-up. They are definitely intended, they were definitely intended for me, but I certainly did not order these ducklings. I mean, no offense, it's got three heads, but it's still one duckling, he said. To be sure, Brighton didn't accidentally make a, make the order on eBay after a night of drinking. Something he admits has happened on occasion, he checks his bank statements. He can find no evidence that he sought out the strange item himself. himself. The three-headed duckling comes with a set of instructions. Instruction number one, Let your new arrival sit out in the sun or in the air for 48 hours after opening the package. I guess sort of the same way you'd want to uh, off-gas a new mattress. That's the way I saw it anyway, Brayton chuckled. Second instruction was to, uh, and this is something I found quite strange. It asked me to use a regular hair blow dryer to fluffy the duck's feathers. Rule three, don't get it wet. Rule four, don't feed it after midnight. I may have made up those last two. Brayton wrote on Facebook about becoming a three-headed duck, uh, three, a three-headed duck father, and posted a video where he dutifully follows the instructions. He said a quick search online revealed a taxidermied duckling and costs between 80 and 200 U.S. dollars. This is an expensive artifact, he said, and I can't imagine a company sending away all of these ducklings when they're quite valuable. The only clue contained in the package is an email address. Brighton sent a message to the address, but didn't receive many answers. They didn't quite understand what I was asking. They wanted to know if I wanted to buy something, so I asked for more information, but they haven't gotten back with me yet. Some digging online has revealed the name on the email address matches the name of a Chinese zoologist who appears to be well known for his work preserving larger animals, like elephants and giraffes. I really hope that I uh, do find out who sent it to me, Brayton said. I figure it's either a friend who really likes the idea of giving me a mystery, or it's an enemy who's trying to send a cursed object to me. He asked for friends to come up with a name for the duckling, a question that led to a philosophical discussion about the nature of the soul and whether a three-headed being deserves three names. No, it deserves one name. It's one bean. It just has three heads. One suggestion was to name it after three Disney cartoon ducks, Huey, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Brayton's personal favorites are Cerberus, the three-headed dog that guards the gates of Hades in Greek mythology, or Howard's the Duck, a spin on the name of the Marvel Comics character. Brayton might be confused, but he's not mad that this unusual gift landed on his doorstep. I guess in these sort of COVID days, it's nice to have something whimsical happen to you once. In a while and this last one is a short and sweet uh ufo story from wichita in kansas uh ufo in wichita question mark residents can't agree on what this unusual flying object was this is from kake abc set at kake.com written by eli higgins and there's also i believe a little news story you can click and watch that goes along with it wichita kansas kake hundreds of wichita residents were shocked thursday saying they saw what appeared to be a UFO. Videos like this, and they're referring to the video at the top of the, the article here, recorded by Wichita resident Mike Marler, quickly circled social media. So I'm driving back to work, coming home from lunch, and I noticed something in the sky, really bright, says Marler. It was surprising, because we live in Wichita. We see airplanes all the time. We're near the airport, but it was definitely different. After receiving calls and messages from even more people wondering what it was, we decided to go where we would have the best vantage point and investigate. And then it says the sky. I don't know if that was the news team or what. We didn't see anything abnormal during the flight, and the air traffic control didn't indicate anything unusual. I think the sky must be like their helicopter or the plane they probably use for traffic reports or something. We didn't see anything abnormal during the flight, and the air traffic control didn't indicate anything unusual. But back on the ground, social media continued going crazy. Some people were saying it was a military jet. Some saying it was a drone. But others posted videos saying it was actually an airplane towing a giant Arby's advertisement banner. NASA's Super Guppy was also thrown in Thursday. And there was a small airplane carrying Arby's banner around town for a period of time. But many people aren't convinced either of these are what they saw. The rumor is that it was an Arby's advertisement plane, which, you know, logic would point to that, but it was really fast-moving, and it was really bright and vivid, and then it just disappeared, said Mahler. And that's really the end of the article. You can watch the video. It's like, uh, I don't even think it's two minutes long, and they do show it. It does look like a kind of white, uh, dare I say, tic tac shape object, but it's very large. It certainly isn't a plane uh, toting a banner behind it. If it is... Arby should get their money back because I didn't see anything that's anything about Arby's. But a uh, nice little video about uh, a UFO in Wichita. And there you go. That has been this episode's local headlines. And uh, tonight, for the Your Small Town Secret segment, I have a twofer from the same Reddit user Going by the username same old, same old. Uh, Two stories from them. I think they take place in the same house around the same property. Uh, Here is their first story. I'll try to keep this fairly short. On September 22nd, the love of my life died unexpectedly. He is the most important person to me and I have never been able to bond with anyone like I had with him. It was absolutely devastating to say the least. A month prior to this, I started feeling weirdly spiritually driven. I started meditating and chanting, and that led me to uh, hearing my intuition very clearly and following it. Although I've always thought of myself to be spiritual, I never actually put it into practice. Two weeks before he died, I found this spot out in the woods and started building this structure like a, a big teepee hut, and on the inside was a big circle on the ground of balanced sticks and branches to form what looked like a nest. I used it as my sacred space. I'm not sure why, but I became obsessed with it. I was out there ten hours a day working on this thing. I even cemented in enormous branches and trunks I used as main posts with mud that I had to climb down into the banks near the river for. It was honestly a ton of work, but I loved it and felt so driven. The day after he died, I went out there and decided to make it a memorial for him. I spent all day painting it. I had been drinking and sobbing and screaming, and by nighttime, I decided I wanted to go for a drive. It was stupid, but I was out I was out in the country, and I drove for a long time down random roads, listening to the music we shared love for it, and continuing to scream and sob. I kept screaming at him, asking him how he could be so stupid. I screamed that I hated him. I was so emotional that I was driving with my head facing down on the steering wheel. I was going 65 on these country roads. I left my brights purposely off and not even looking up at the road unless I could feel my car start to skid from the looser sand at the sides of the road. I literally couldn't pick my head up. I was so distraught, I ended up pulling over because a friend had called me to see if I was alright. obviously he could tell I wasn't. He told me to come back into town and see him so I wouldn't be alone. I mapped my GPS to his place because at this point I had no idea where I was. My GPS is messed up and sometimes won't load my navigation, but it said just go straight for many miles. I didn't put my seatbelt on and I started driving again, and this normal country road turns into this very narrow, obviously not often used road. Only one car could go down it and there was very loose sand on two paths for each side of the tires with grass growing in the middle. I ended up breaking down like before and was sobbing again and screaming with my head face down on the steering wheel driving about 60 mph. Honestly, I generally hoped that something bad would happen to me, I really didn't care. This part was very strange, and it's what made me lift my head up. All of a sudden, I can feel my significant other sitting right next to me. It's so strange to try and explain, but for some reason, I knew he was just sitting there. So my head shoots up, and I look over, and in my mind, I can see him and his facial expression with absolute clarity. My mouth is hanging open and when I turn to look at them in front of me, there is an owl standing directly in the road in front of me. I have never actually seen an owl It's not up in a tree, and at first I had no idea what it was and was scared. I got closer to it, and uh, it's not moving, so I honk my horn and I hit my brakes a little because I just can't come to complete stop to not hit it as I'm going too fast on this sandy road. My honking does nothing to scare it off, and now I'm right in front of it. I hit my brakes, more than I thought would be safe, and my car starts sliding around. Exactly right before I hit this owl, it then flies up in front of my car. I remember watching it for a brief moment and realizing that it was an owl. Its wings were so big. I don't think I've ever seen an owl fly before. That's when I looked forward and can now see that this road ends at this steep hill, and I am literally about to crash into it. It wasn't like a slope that my car would go up either. It was like a wall. I slammed down fully on my brakes and slide into it, but just barely. I sat there in shock for a second, and then I started screaming, What the fuck? Had the owl not been standing there, refusing the move, I may not have hit my brakes twice slowing my car down enough, making it possible for me to stop without sliding on the sandy road right into this hill. I was shocked about this for days and have no idea why that owl was standing out there in the open like that. It seriously looked like it was standing there just waiting for me. And that's got to be a hard story to write, a hard story to share, not just on Reddit, but also allowed me to read it to everyone else. But I've heard about that before, this kind of you know this this animal that shows up at just the right time to 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 save you from something or to put you on the correct path. And uh, for whatever reason, I think that's probably why that owl was there, and uh, it needed to be there, and it did its job, and you're still here because of it. And here is another one from same old same old. Uh, this one just posted, I think, yesterday, so it's fair. It's very recent. This happened last week, and I can't stop thinking about it. I don't know if anyone has any insight that can be shed, but getting it out there and hearing feedback might ease my fear. Last week I was at home watching a movie. I was reclined in my chair, which faces a window that faces another building with a small amount of grass in between. I live in a basement apartment, so the windows are at ground level. They are about 2 feet tall and 3 feet wide. I doze off and fall into deep sleep. My dog is sleeping on my lap. I'll mention that my dog barks at any animal or wind rustling leaves outside this window. No people ever walk by it, given its location, but occasionally a bird will come by. I wake up abruptly from sleep with an intense alertness. My eyes open wide quickly, like an instinctual response. I remember immediately feeling like I was being watched. Simultaneously. I look straight out the window. I am staring right at this face. Our eyes are locked on each other. I remember feeling nothing but extreme alertness and fear, but also very calm. I had this absolute knowing that had been watching me sleep for a while. It felt more curious than threatening. It was bizarre, and I felt like I couldn't move like I was hypnotized. Anyway, we stared at each other for a solid 20 seconds or so. And I'm just lying there still, unblinking. My mind was shifting through possibilities to rationalize logically what it could be. I wanted so badly to believe it was an animal, but its face was bare fur with human-colored skin. It was also very small. No way it could have been a human. It had to be the size of a one-year-old child if that by the size of its face. I couldn't see his body because it was dark outside, but my apartment was lit by my Christmas lights. It's, uh, it looked like it was leaned in on its arms, his face, close to the window as possible. It was strange to I me mean, that my dog was not barking. He lied there, still with me. And this is when I think I might have been having sleep paralysis or something. I've had sleep paralysis very often, and this didn't feel like it. It felt more like a trance state. I felt connected to it somehow. I get the nerve to sit up and to get a closer look and mumble, what the fuck? Then, when it backs away, I remember my thought process being in slow motion and clear. I tell myself to listen closely to see if I can hear four legs or two. It gets up and runs away. And this is when my dog starts barking. And that's when I know for sure and I'm not imagining it. I, I hear it run, distinctly on two feet. It sounded so small and I could tell by the sound of its gate that it was very small. I sit there, confused as shit, as my dog goes crazy. I check the time. It's 4.47 a.m. Guys, I have no idea what to think. It does correlate with one thing, though. In late August, I started building a shrine temple thing out in the woods at a large nature park. It was my favorite spot to go meditate or practice my harmonica or write. It became an encompassing spiritual ritual to go out there, This whole thing was a meditation type practice and is basically a big teepee made from a dead tree trunk and branches with a stacked circle inside. I worked tirelessly out there being a kind of being kind of a union with nature in my mind as I built. I meditated and carried the meditation out with action. I remember one night at 1 a.m. a friend and I were sitting there. We were in the middle of a conversation when my friend's face turns into a panic slash worry i stopped talking and can hear footsteps coming towards us it was already loud and distinct as if close to us but we sat and listened for a long time and kept walking closer but never got to us we decided to leave and she doesn't like talking about it because of the feeling of the energy in the air as we acknowledged it anyway someone totally destroyed my shrine in october and i left it as is it crushed me and I would often visit the ruins, heartbroken. To wrap this tangent up, the day this happened, the creature watching me sleep, was the same day I went out there and suddenly felt the strong urge to rebuild it. I cleared everything and started again, and after a few hours I came home and fell asleep, and then this all happened. So, uh, two stories, one pretty much a direct sequel of the other, uh, uh, I really, I had found the second one the first time and asked to use it, and then she's like, "You should, you should also grab this one, because uh, it goes with it." And they are two, I think, very fascinating stories. If anyone has any insight, any ideas onto what might have been going on in that second one with the creature staring for the window, and all of that, uh, right into the show, uh, stscastmail at gmail Let me know. I will return. Let them know. And uh, maybe some answers can come of it. But those have been, those two stories I would like to thank once again, uh, same Old, same Old, for letting me share both of those stories. And that has been uh, uh, your small town secret for this final episode of season five. And if you have a small town secret to share, a uh, personal experience, like a haunting, a UFO sighting, a Bigfoot sighting, you know, or, you know, you have like, Story that made the news and you want to share, anything like that, or you just need to get you want to get in contact with me. You can uh, do that uh, many ways. Social media. You can get a hold of me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. That and Facebook are both at stscast.com, and uh, Instagram is at stscastgram. So that is the that is the one that is different. But you can get to me uh, through social media right there, or You can go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the main page. There's an email form that you can fill out, and uh, it'll come to me, and we can figure it out. I can just read it on the show, like I just did. You want to come on and talk about it? You want to like pre record something? Uh, Maybe just have an article to send. Anything is great. Let me know. I can get it on. While you're at stscast.com, check out all the other stuff is on there. Uh, Show notes pictures, you know, sources, all that's there. Uh, You can click on the merch tab and uh, buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug. I just bought myself another coffee mug because I need one for here. (laughs) I used to have two coffee mugs. One one was my small town secret coffee mug that was always here. And then I had one at work that was like an alien head. But I broke the alien head. So I took my small town secret one to work. And now I just use whatever stupid mug I can find lying around the house. But I have finally ordered a second mug to replace basically the alien head. So now I will have uh, proper muggage that I want at both locations. But you can uh, t shirts, mugs, stickers, all sorts of stuff that's there. Uh, there are other ways to support the show. The Patreon link is on there. You know, if you want to make a PayPal donation, you can do that. Uh, if you want to help support the show and can't do it financially, then uh, just leave a review, please. Five star review. On uh, your podcatcher of choice, especially iTunes, and uh, just tell a friend. Uh, I say it almost every episode. You're probably tired of hearing it, but I'm going to say it again. If everybody gets one other person to listen to the show, then we've doubled the audience, just like that. So, thanks, thanks once again, everyone, for listening. Thanks, everyone, for supporting this show. I am going to take a little break and come back for season six. Uh, if you're on Patreon, my plan for this week's Backroads is to find a nice audio file of, of the Halt tape, the 18 minutes of them out in the forest doing stuff and uh, throwing that file into Logic Pro. And we'll just go through together and I'll pause, have some commentary, some stuff to say about it, but we can all listen to it together. Uh, that's my plan for Backroads, if I can find a good enough file without too much hassle. If not, uh, it'll be something else. I don't know. But that is what the Patreons have to look forward to. And then, of course, there will be another backwards episode during the break that'll be about something wacky uh, before we come back for season six. So that's it. That's a wrap on the episode. That's a wrap on the season. Once again, thanks, everyone. And uh, just remember that every town has a secret. What is yours?